0: Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Asher Lobb. And if you're not familiar with Asher, Asher is a classical violinist who has worn multiple hats in the industry. He's done everything from being a live touring musician, where he's played at venues like Madison Square Gardens, Hammerstein Hall, Lincoln Center. He's been featured on CNN, PBS, NBC, and a whole bunch more. Plus, he also does a lot of session work in the studio, and he composes, and he does a lot of corporate work as well. So He comes into this episode with a lot of different experiences to learn from, and in this interview we get into a lot about being a session musician, what that looks like, how to get your foot in the door, and then we also talk a lot about the recording process when it comes to recording strings, building orchestral arrangements, programming them, and making them sound realistic. So I think that there's a bunch of good stuff in here, so if you're looking to get into the world of being a session musician, or you're working with violins and stuff like that, I think you're going to get a ton of good stuff out of this episode. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Asher Lobb, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? Hey, it's great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Of course. For people who might not be familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of that background on who you are, what you do, and how you got into all the stuff you're working on these days? Not familiar with me. How dare you? Just kidding.
1: (laughs) Um, Well, what I've been working on, a whole lot of different things. I wear a lot of hats. Uh, So I am an electric violinist, first and foremost, um, contemporary violinist composer producer live performer um cross genre kind of performer so i'm doing EDM um orchestral music i'm doing live performances about 200 events a year corporate concerts that type of stuff uh, i and i also deal in the the booking booking realm through fiddlers dream productions which is my entertainment group um i'm i've been spending a whole lot of time producing full symphonies um electronic slash Orchestral um, blend of music, which is kind of two of my favorite, two of my big passions. And that's what, what I've been up to. Cool. Connecting with fans. Mm-hmm.
0: How did you get into all of that? Like, what made you first start?
1: Well, it started uh, at the age of two and change. Uh, this is kind of like my typical story. People are always like, what? Um, yeah, it's pretty shocking too. <laughs> yeah, two and change. I had a little margarine box with uh, rubber band serving as strings. My mother. Uh, put that in my hands and taught me and then start me started me on private lessons and uh pretty intensive lessons up until I was in high school. And then I went into improvisation and then became a professional, like on the scene in New York city, uh club date musician and, and just live performer moved my way up to into like the concert realm within a few years. And, uh, that's kind of how, how it all happened in a nutshell.
0: Did you come from a musical family?
1: Yeah, both parents are musical. Uh, my probably the biggest inspiration is my aunt Sheila, who's in the Boston Symphony. Uh, she's like the fourth violinist in the first section. So she she's been there forever, and she's like we all we all looked up to her. My oldest brother, six years older than me, Errol. He's uh, he you know he was playing concertos at the age of six. You know I, I wanted to be like that. Uh, so so I took after him. My my old my second oldest brother Ethan is you know two three years older than me. Plays flute. Uh, moved into uh, um, oboe, I was going to say piccolo, oboe, it's been a while, and my youngest sister plays flute, so
0: a lot of That's music. awesome. Yeah, it always helps to be surrounded by that and like grow up in that environment because it, it is more encouraging, I find, right? Yeah, it's encouraging, and it's sort of
1: when I see these big um, obstacles in front of me musically, in which there are just countless, um, I, I kind of look to my background, I feel like, it kind of gives me the a boost of confidence that okay I can achieve this even of though course. the industry is very different than it was 20 years ago <laughs> not about not so much about classical but in terms of the theory I feel confident in in the production work that I do
0: for sure well you mentioned that like you do a lot of live performances and I know you you play with a lot of other musicians and and New York is definitely a place where there's a lot of action going on, but it's also a very saturated market and stuff too. So, um, I'm curious to know how you got your foot in the door there. Cause you know, I imagine it wasn't just, Hey, I can play violin. I'm now in 20 bands, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, no, it didn't
1: happen overnight. It, it, it took, took an effort, but, uh, I was just kind of, I was, I was a senior in high school. Um, I was going to, uh, to, well, I, Went to NYU and Yeshiva University as well. Couple, couple universities. Three, three degrees that I none of which actually went into my music career. But, um, I I auditioned for uh, to a bunch of bands. I sent in tapes, an actual tape. Yeah, back back when tapes existed and were relevant. Uh, to to a couple of bands in New York, New York tri-state area, and they loved the way I played. I, I could improvise, and I had like this unique ability to. Improvise on the violin and also sight read, so they're like, okay, this is like a useful sort of skill that we can't find too many other people doing. So that that got me in the door. But I, I was playing for free a couple times, and then I started at a low price, and then it pretty quickly rose up to like union wage, and then you know moved move from there into independent artist realm.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I'm always interested in like the the session musician because I feel like there's a lot of people who are great musicians themselves. Maybe they, um, you know, maybe they don't have a band of their own or something like that. And the session musician realm is a, a good place for them to go. But a lot of people don't know how to get their foot in that door. And, you know, it's, it's like, you just start enough bands until you get noticed there. Or like, how, how does, how does one break into that scene as a session musician?
1: Yes. Yeah, so some people, their approach is to like, you know, cut costs, but that doesn't, I think that harms the person more than anybody else, more than their competition. Uh, distinguishing yourself and, and and impressing some big people, or at least impressing some clients, and then maybe getting some reviews so that the public can see, so that other other people can see how good of a job you did in the studio. So that's that's kind of one way I would I would approach it and, and have approached it. Uh, so building relationships is definitely a way to go. Networking in that in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I produce my own music and I work with other people, so I, I think that also kind of helped help me get my name out there.
0: Uh, yeah, it's pretty much the general idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Like, I think if you're going to, if you're going to be a session musician, you really do have to really expand your network so that everyone knows who you are, right. Whether, whether you're the one that's like introducing yourself on a project that you're producing yourselves or like, you know, so people can see what you're up to, um, or you just like gigging around or whatever. I think there's a lot of, you really do need to put a lot of emphasis on that, uh, on that networking side of things.
1: Yeah. And that's sort of the game in any, any industry networking with people. They, they know you, you know, them even just a way of networking is, is even just like booking people for, uh, you know, on gigs that might come your way that you're not available for. Some people might just say, okay, I'm not available. I'm not interested, but I'll take that opportunity to kind of make a connection or remind people I haven't worked with in like 10 years. Oh, you know, I know this guy's talented. I'm going to send him this way, send, send a client this way. And that's a way of networking also. You don't necessarily have to pay, Hundreds of dollars to show up to a networking event, per se.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that idea of just like connecting other people and, and, uh, yeah, really just using it to, to bring people together and stay top of mind that way. Yeah, that's great, great idea. Um, yeah. So as far as networking goes for you, like how, how active do you find yourself with networking? Like maybe I'm assuming you're, you're more established in your career these days. So maybe it's not as active as it used to be. Or you know, is that maybe not the case? So
1: yeah, I'm I'm definitely more established in my career, uh, but not everybody across the globe knows me. So you could say I'm. It depends on the perspective you're taking. You know, if, of if you're talking like Coldplay level. Like I'm an, I'm a nobody. They don't know who I am. I don't know who they. <laughs> you're <know>, like. <laughs> but but in terms of like session musicians and like, you know, booking agents and different concert uh, producers in in the tri-state, um, L.A., Texas. You know, I'm pretty well known. Parts of, of Israel. Uh, you know. Just yeah, different regions of the world, uh, parts of like Europe, um, Sweden, Denmark, that type of stuff. Uh, so but but it's funny because everybody thinks, oh yeah, this guy's famous. He's got like a million followers on on uh, on social media, and like nobody knows who they are if you ask like your average person. So <laughs> it's all kind of like a relative perspective thing. Um, I, I think there's always an opportunity to there's and always a reason to network. There's it's always a valuable. Uh, to just connect with new people, and there's always more musicians out there that I didn't even know existed, and and valuable and important con- important contacts uh, that I didn't that I just haven't haven't uh, connected with. So, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if I'm digressing from your question, but uh, I guess my main point is, it's a it's per- it's a matter of perspective, and also there's always there's always what to do to b- to boost your career.
0: Yeah, of course. You always want to be expanding your network. And, you know, the more you can connect with more musicians, the more opportunities will come your way, right? And it's kind of funny because it seems like these days when it comes to social media, there's this pursuit to always have more and more followers. And, you know, for someone in your position, you do have a lot of followers. So I wouldn't say that nobody knows you. You know what I mean? Like you definitely have a lot more, a lot of followers. But I guess there's always that pursuit of trying to get even more people to pay attention, right?
1: Yeah. Well, well, you know, a lot of, again, a lot of people know me, like I've had millions of streams, uh, videos and and my, my music has been played for many people around the world. Uh, but, but there's 7 billion people on this planet. So that means that that like millions of people it's means that percentage. there are billions of people who have no idea who I am, which means like, that's just my perspective. <laughs> like it, th- this is the thing. And I, I try to emphasize this on interviews and just, just schmoozing with people because there are so many people who's, There's so many artists whose heads are in the cloud and they think they're such hot shots, hot shit because they have millions of followers or views or hundreds of thousands of followers and they're just like too big to touch. And they don't realize that like, or they don't think about the fact that there are literally a billion people or billions of other people who have no (laughs) idea who they are, like in China, Japan, like, so, okay, fine. You're famous in the U.S., but who knows you in South America or anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. Another
1: issue like with, okay, let's just say you have 100,000 followers or like 2 million followers. How many of those followers is Instagram or TikTok or Twitter? Are they showing your post to? It's true. And it drives me crazy because it's like they create this system where everybody's stressed out. Okay, uh, I got to have a million followers. But then but then like you're, you're, the engagement rate is kind of what's a bit more important. And even that doesn't even matter as much as like the high ticket sales or contracts that you're getting.
0: I think a lot of artists you know they they all feel like you need to have to to be successful in this industry you need to have like tons of people following you and and this and that but really you can have a very successful career with a small number of people as long as they're the right people.
1: Yeah, I you know I I've, I've found bigger artists like from from the superficial perspective of numbers uh easier to connect with and collaborate with than some really small artists <laughs> small smaller than me who have who have like produced grammy award winning like gold whatever uh, platinum selling records um so i i think some of it it's somewhat of a mirage it it is valuable uh but but i think that there are many different facets to what make makes somebody a hot shot fair um, yeah <laughs> there are producers and and um mixing and mastering geniuses that uh have small followings and and uh, you know, I would love to work with them.
0: For sure. So then as far as like, again, going back to that, that session musician thing and, and networking, um, yeah. how important is it for you to like have diversity in the styles of music that you play? Like I know some people will say like, oh, you just want to like niche down and be known for one specific genre or whatever. And you even said it yourself, like electronic and and, and uh, classical, that's kind of like the your main niche, but. Yeah, that's because that's what I love. Um. I, you know hip hop would probably be a
1: hell of a lot easier for me because I'm already connected with all these hip hop artists um a bunch of people have been chasing after me and it's just it, it's not the trap thing just doesn't resonate with me as much and I guess it's not just about fame for me <laughs> as it is like playing playing music that I really resonates with my my soul um so I guess I'm diversifying to see sort of like what what hits th- What's the phrase? Hits the fan? No, shit hits the fan. No, <laughs> to, see, to see like what 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 emerges in terms of opportunities. Uh, so, I've been collaborating with a variety of artists. Like I, I released uh, freefall with uh, this guy, Insane Beats. He produced. He's a producer, and uh, we kind of connected. And that was in hip hop. And then I connect with some other hip hop artists. But later down the road, I moved into sort of subtle pulse, which I released with a very talented singer out in Seattle, um, Porter Singer. Totally different genre. Um, more or less in the, like the house EDM type realm and and sort of it was like a 50/50 split between her voice and my my violin it was like a kind of we were venturing into a new territory in terms of production and i didn't stay true to this originally you know this uh EDM house approach and then i didn't stay true to like this um insane beats direction that i was taking for a few years uh, in hip hop I've just been kind of shifting, and and like the last couple of releases since December have been full orchestral symphonies, totally like movie type cinematic productions. So yeah, I guess I, you could say I've just been exploring
0: and exploring to see what ha- so what emerges. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, I, I I would think that it would be important to to be diverse and that kind of stuff, so that you can be as active as you want to be and be be a little bit more selective of the types of gigs that you want to have, right? some for sometimes you you don't want to necessarily be niched down as like the one, the one guy who does the one thing, you know what I mean? Like having, having a little bit of a broader scope of, of work available would potentially offer more opportunities.
1: Yeah. And I guess that's, so that's kind of what I'm doing in terms of live performances. You know, I, I if I see an opportunity come my way, like the, the Bollywood uh, clientele, they came my way and they were just willing to pay. And the productions were awesome, and the, uh, the experiences were awesome, and the music's awesome, like South Asian music. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I just I took it, and I learned the repertoire. I learned about 200 songs by heart. took took like a, at least a year and a half or so. And uh, so I think that it was worth it in retrospect um, for me to not just stick to this niche of classical violin or contemporary violin. I would say that the one thing that, that remains consistent in all of my productions is the violin. Gotcha yeah, well, I mean that's that's that is your instrument, right, so that kind of makes sense, yeah, um, but I am a little stubborn with some things, you know sometimes i'll uh for live events, people will ask me, oh, but do you sing and do you play guitar? do you li-? I'm like, I'm not doing that, no, you wanna hear you want you want you want to hear me sing, play guitar, do piano, that type of stuff, listen to my productions, I'm not doing it live, I'm sticking to like d j violin, that's pretty much it, yeah
0: I uh, mean and I guess I guess too, like. You know, because the violin is your main instrument, it's like if they're hiring you to be the musician. It's like they should get the best version of your musical skills, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's sort of like being pushed into to this like ADHD mode of like, oh, let me play 50 different instruments at once and show them how versatile I am. You know, master of none. What is it? What's the phrase? Like uh, master of
0: jack of all trades, master of none. Jack of all trades, master of none. Thank you. That's my point. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And, and like, it's it's kind of odd to me that people would request all of those different things from you because to me, I've always, I mean, at least I've always viewed session musicians as like, they have their one thing that they're really good at. And like, that's the thing you hire them for. And you don't expect like the drummer to be the singer and the guitar player and all that stuff too, you know?
1: Although speaking to your audience, um, if you're really good at the piano, or at least you have a good amount of like music theory background, you can do countless instruments For sure,
0: with yeah, with MIDI, you can like absolutely program anything. Like, I I am a drummer, and to me, like that's the one thing that I wish I, I I wish I had learned piano because not not because I'm interested in piano at all personally, but because it would have allowed me to do so much more from a composition side on the back end. Yeah, but now I guess there's, but now you got there's all these
1: loops available and and all the software that kind of facilitates pretty quick production. Yeah, yeah, for Um, sure. (laughs) <laughs> although although you are limited if you really want to make it a heavy duty like like separating the boys from the men type of production like producing music that you're going to make thousands of bucks off of like music libraries that type of stuff
0: for sure well i mean yeah it depends on your goals with the music right if you're if you're trying to get into like a commercial realm then you know you do have to kind of be the you you either have to be the person that can play it all or have like a network of people that you can call at any minute to to put together an arrangement and um you know make something that would work and sound complete. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, as far as the, um, production side of things goes for you, then you're obviously, it sounds like you are working on these kind of full production projects where people are coming to you saying, I'm guessing they're like, Hey, we want something in the style of this, make it happen. Is that, is that kind of the project that you get?
1: Yeah, I I do. I do some of that. I produce my own music, uh, for my full-time career. (laughs) Uh, so that, that alone is a heck of a lot of work. Um, and then I'm producing music for like for artists that are established in order to partially push push my career more as a producer and also as an artist. So again, I'm wearing multiple hats simultaneously. Um and then like the third arm of that is uh producing for for companies so I could kind of earn money off of royalties that way. Yeah, we're again, like I said, wearing a lot of hats. Uh I have I've sort of been dabbling in many different um aspects of of earning a living in music, and and I'm gonna say that Producing music for myself is the most enjoyable, but to an extent, practical nature of, of earning an income, you need to kind of bring in the big money. Uh, so if you can if you can impress like some companies with your productions, as opposed to like small mom and top it's mom and pop type type of clients, um, you know you can you can earn better money. So, uh, but the trick there is kind of honing your craft. So if you're if you're playing if you're producing synth wave. You better be damn good at producing synth wave and, and damn good at like mix it, knowing how to mix and master unless you're going to kind of sub that out to a professional, which I do sometimes. Um, you know, if I'm kind of overwhelmed with work and I don't have the time to be spending hours uh, listening, you know, knowing exactly where to cut. Uh, if I have the time where it's my baby, um, such as with the full symphonies and that type of stuff takes out, can take hours, uh, I will generally try to mix that stuff down myself. Mm-hmm. And I tend to use fewer plugins than you might expect, uh, and I've also learned that from my peers. Because um, often you can muddy muddy the waters, muddy the product if you're using too many plugins. For sure. Yeah, I can kind of segue from there into like what what I like to prioritize in terms of mixing, um, or maybe give some advice on mistakes that people tend to do in in mastering from my vantage point.
0: For sure. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot a lot of good stuff there that we I think we can dive into. Um, you know, first off, one thing that I wanted to that I caught on to that I, I wanted to discuss a little bit was the idea of producing for corporate work. And I think that that's something that a lot of my listeners, a lot of them are doing stuff for themselves and for their own bands or whatever. Um, but I think that there are a lot of people that are trying to get gigs with licensing and, and uh, you know, licensing for film, TV, commercials, whatever. Um or you know, corporate other other corporate events and that kind of stuff, um, and that seems to be a world that you know pretty well, that or that you that you've been in. So, um, I think there's the thing with corporations is that they're intimidating to get into. <laughs> so, they are. Wh- what advice do you have as far as like getting in with a company to to work on their stuff? So, I started by producing my own music
1: and then kind of pitching to cor- corporate to companies and then to corporate entertaining entertainment. Uh, booking agencies uh, and it took me quite a while (laughs) Uh, like months and months and months just just doing outreach and just like showing them what I'm made of and what I can do and like showing them my website and what uh, my music videos and like my performances as a live entertainer Um, and I sort of complemented that with the live mixes that I was pretty much pitching to them Um, so they they would book me for a live performance on stage type of thing Uh, and then I kind of moved into I've been and I've been still moving into um exclusively music just earning money off of music uh taking the live performance aspect out of it because cuz looking long term like when i'm 60 70 uh, they're not going to be hiring me to be like a dancing violinist uh, performing with with live breakdancers <laughs> necessarily uh so uh, but but when i'm 60 70 80 90 like if my music's good my music's good and they'll pay me for that mm-hmm. that's sort of what i've been uh Thinking about, but, but to answer your question about the intimidation factor, uh, anything I think worth earning is, is going to be intimidating. Uh, you know, applying for a job for a major corporation is going to be intimidating and you gotta, you gotta really break a sweat if you want to achieve kind of that status of, or that type of income level, uh, level or stability, whatever it is. And it's going to make you better at what you do at your craft. It's going to challenge you to kind of push, push the envelope. It's going to challenge you to think, more critically about your mixes. It's going to challenge you to think more critically about, okay, what, uh, what I, what do I need to produce an ideal end product? That sounds great on my cell phone, on a shitty computer from 1980s, uh, on my, you know, my dashboard and my, and my, uh, my car, um, on my laptop. It's, it's going to challenge you to, to just be a better engineer, a better producer. And, uh, that's what you got to think. You know, you got to think what you got to look at the big people, where are they at? How do I get to where they're at mm-hmm. and uh
0: that'll that'll kind of help you push the envelope for sure. Well, it sounded like you know your approach to it was really just a matter of building up your portfolio so that you can lead by example with it i guess
1: uh yeah, or just 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 the mere uh effort of reaching out to the big guns mm-hmm. um will 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 lead you to understanding what they're looking for. They're going to ask you the questions or they may reject you based on certain criteria that you didn't meet. Fair, And as a result, you're going to look, take a hard look at your product and you're going to adjust accordingly as opposed to just like sitting in your studio all day long and uh, playing with loops endlessly, uh, just assuming that if you play, if you produce a product that sounds good to your ears, then it's automatically going to sound good to somebody else's ears. Sure. and in fact, it doesn't.
0: Yeah, I guess guess it's kind of that... um you know, it kind of comes in two parts. It's like, for for people who are new at this, you have to build up a little bit of a portfolio to show that you're capable of doing it. But then beyond that, it is really what you're saying there, where it's like, when you know the exact purpose that this company or whoever needs your music for, then you can really customize it based on those needs and ultimately secure the job.
1: Yeah, uh, and that's pretty much, you took the words out of my mouth. And, um, you know, nothing happens overnight unless you got a big, Label backing you, uh, which is probably not always an ideal situation anyway. If you're going to end up with a three hundred and sixty deal, <laughs> but uh, most most things worth worth uh, earning uh, take a lot of time. Take take time honing your craft. Uh, the, the big engineers that I've just learned from um, and and read about and and just watched um, their tutorials, they they say that there's there's no one size fits all mastering and mixing style so much that they may have their go-to plugins or their go-to like cutting at certain frequencies, uh, with like the bass and the drums and, um, the ducking, uh, fab filter uh, type strategies that they'll implement in their mixing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, but they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, there isn't one size fits all recipe. Um, cause every song is kind of different and,
0: Yeah, of course. Well, like such a big part of it is you have to obviously understand the theory. You have to understand the process and have your own workflow. Those those things don't necessarily change, but it's the the types of people that you're working with or the music, the songs that you're working with. Those things change. And because of that, you have to adapt your process to to match those.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's all about honing your craft. For sure. island. The violin for me, it was like it was it was a lifetime worth of effort, <laughs> and uh, and now I can play the instrument. Um, in the case of loops, um, even even that takes an effort. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you know, like a lot of people, they kind of they'll mix and match loops, but uh, some loops don't work well with others. And in that sense, you need to kind of have a reference track to know what sounds good. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've worked with DJs that I mean, the the live mix, and they just. They're not producers. They they don't play a live instrument. They'll DJ. They'll own the, the expensive equipment. But as a result of the fact that they don't have any real music theory knowledge behind them, means that they're clashing uh, two different songs that don't match um, the melody and they, they're in different keys and it doesn't sound good. <laughs> and just because they have the same rhythm, the same BPM, doesn't mean that <laughs> the end product's good. You know what I'm talking about because yeah, you're I know a live what you're performer. About. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I find it painful as a live performer to play along with those people, which is why I went into DJing in the first place. But so word to the wise, if you're a producer and you're looking to kind of ramp up your career, don't just dabble, like really hone your craft, listen to reference tracks, listen to music and, and you'll get better and better. The more you, you listen and you'll know what's not doesn't sound good.
0: Well, I would make the argument, not that they don't listen to music, they listen to the music, but they don't understand the, the theory side of it enough to know why something works or doesn't. It, it, you know, might just be a feeling thing. But if if you don't really hear the the theoretical things that work and that don't, then you're kind of oblivious to it, right?
1: Yeah, uh, but you know, I'm not thinking about music theater like music theory when I'm playing the violin. I feel it, I hear it. It's it's patterns in the mind. You're not thinking about music theory when you're playing drums. You're you feel it, you hear it. Sure. Patterns in the brain. Uh, that, that, I mean, sure you, you need a backdrop, you know, you need, you need to, to know some music theory as a basis, but uh, I know some amazing musicians that do not sight read. Um, it's better off, you're better off, you know, in terms of your career, I think if you sight read, but, um, I know plenty of like hot shot like corporate event performers that do, that just play by ear, but they got a really good ear. Um, mm-hmm. so that's just, that's just something, yeah, I've learned that, okay, you can make it if you just got a really good ear and you could produce if you got a really good ear. Um, I know some good, I know some really talented people who don't know really music theory, uh, in terms of like, they didn't go to school, but they've spent years and years like listening to music. And so they'll know how to take loops and properly match them up with, you know, their saxophone and, uh, the, the singer and so on and so forth and mix down properly.
0: Yeah. Mm Yeah yeah well, the theory thing is I'm sure is very really important especially in violin classical instrument I imagine that you you grow up knowing the theory right out right out of the gates with that It's not one of those instruments that you just pick up and you can figure it out for yourself very easily It's like it seems to be a world where you're very entrenched in the theory at least in the early stages um and I that kind of brings me to uh a question I had about composition and because you are composing a lot of like orchestral arrangements you said and, and you're doing that kind of thing and if you're going to do that you obviously have to understand the theory of like you know how how to put things together how to make the different elements of an orchestra work together um so when it comes to composing orchestral arrangements like where do you typically begin with that kind of thing
1: um well it takes a little longer than than the typical uh, arrangement uh just because we're talking like 30 40 50 like tracks which is like it's like a textbook you know on your screen, and that's why I have multiple monitors right over there in my studio um i uh I start with piano i start with just chord progressions generally and and the violin use you know kind of using the violin as the as the melody typically um and then I'll create variations around that melody uh where it kind of focuses on the winds or the um brass or um or even sometimes just play play an old piano, but that's that's kind of the root of everything. The the rhythm, you know, the click beat, the click track, um, piano and, and the violin. Because my violin actually I have an electric violin, um, and I, I actually I, I produced some some music where I've got some heavy electric guitar tones uh, that are actually my violin. I just kind oh, of cool. put it through some plugins, and I, I'm just I'm quicker on the violin than than I am on, on the guitar.
0: That's cool. Yeah, I like that idea of like kind of starting simple and just like kind of getting a foundational sound and then building from there. Um, Yeah, and and the reason I ask that is because I, I know that the majority of people listening to this are in the rock genre and they aren't necessarily as well versed in the compositional side of making orchestral arrangements. And so because of that, I think a lot of people will typically just load up a plugin, find some sort of string preset, and just use that. But it sounds like you like to break apart your arrangements and actually, you know, make the different layers that go into your orchestras. And I imagine that that would give you way more control and help you get a way more realistic sound and ultimately a better sound in the context of a mix.
1: Oh, yeah, like velocity, um, you know, gain, those that type of stuff. And you know, in these in these programs, you're you're able to sort of, uh, you know, it, it change something from staccato to legato, like a cha- change change bo- the bowing, for instance, from staccato mm-hmm. to legato, like change the the length, um, like the wavelength. Uh, you kind of like want to curve the end so that just like a real violin, uh, playing the, the like an A note, you'll 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 kind of uh draw the bow across the string, and then as it as it moves to the end, like towards the tail of the of the bow. Uh, the volume will decrease, so you can kind of make it sound more realistic by maybe adding a little resonance and then and then curving the volume down. I guess, but for lack of, uh, I wish I had a screen in front of me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess that's I guess that's what I was kind of getting at, right? Is it like you know they're. Um Anytime you're programming instruments, whether it's drums or guitar or synths or strings or whatever, it's like, I think most people, when they first start, they just, they play their chords and that's it. And that works and it gets you the foundational sound, but to then make it sound more realistic, you have to kind of understand the way the humans play and you have to know how to program that into your, your MIDI information so that it comes back out sounding human or a little bit more human, right? Yeah, so,
1: so, you know, you can even make a crappy MIDI sound pretty good if you're adjusting output, volume, decay, velocity, those types of things that should be on, you know, any d- decent quality um, MIDI interface.
0: So let's just get to your compositions then. So when you start writing something, are you like, what does that process look like for you? Are you just playing the notes in, and then after the fact you're manipulating it, In post, or is it like you know? Are you doing it kind of real time with modulation on your on your keyboards, or what's that look like? Well, that's another thing you can manipulate is
1: modulation. There's just a million things that you can do to make make just to change the tone of of anything, and also layering. Uh, That's another thing that makes makes kind of like a symphony sound realistic is like adding strings, panning them, like making them sound like there are different parts of the room. That type of thing gives more of like a realistic kind of resonance. But yeah, I'm using like as the structure my keyboard. and, and if I'm having some music theory issues with the, you know, on the piano, because I mean, I'm a solid pianist, but I'm not, I'm not like, I wouldn't hire myself to to be the band leader on piano. I'd hire myself to play violin, the music theory element or complicated runs I do on the violin. So, mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of like my basis, um, drums, uh, you know, if I don't have access to a drummer or if I'm using kind of electronic drum type tones, I'll, I'll, I'll select like a rhythm, that fits the, like the BPM of the song. And then I'll kind of copy paste and then uh, make adjustments within the software, uh,
0: you know, at each, you know, every four bars or so that helps. Yeah, for sure. That's cool. Well, I mean, I guess we, we've talked a lot about how you play violin and, uh, and you know, as far as the production side of things goes, um, that's one area that personally, like I don't really work with violins a lot. So I'd love to get your take on when you're recording violins you know what advice do you have there in order to capture a good, clean sound? Okay,
1: so here I could probably be a little more helpful <laughs> in terms of being descriptive. Like, I there's a million different plugins you could put onto a violin and make it sound c- kind of cool, but I'm gonna say that if you're dealing with strings, the the numero uno would be the Q. Actually, sorry, that would be number two. Number one would be the mic. Uh you know, you 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 want you want your position to be around the F hole where the um where the sound kind of comes is emitted from the viol- within the, the wood of the violin. Uh, it's a little bit more trebly on the right side of the violin versus the left where the G string is. So to make it kind of simple to understand if I'm micing the F hole on the left side of the violin, the positioning is what's important as opposed you know, it's going to sound richer as opposed to on the right side. Gotcha. It also depends on the instrument. So that's numero, that's number one in terms of the quality of the chain. If the, the the sound going in sounds like crap, the sound going out is going to sound like crap. Whatever plugins you put on, no matter how expensive, it's not going to be a very good product. Step two, I'd say I'd say the EQ. That's that's really important. A lot of people make mistakes, like they'll put in like the reverb if it's sounding too dry, or they'll they'll kind of put a lot of emphasis on like, okay, how am I treating my walls? Which is which is important. Uh, and I see you got some beautiful wall treatment right there, but I don't think it's as important as what you're doing. Uh, second step in the chain, like mic to EQ, meaning cutting out the noisy, crappy frequencies. Mm-hmm. Um, you may ha- you may have a little less work in terms of cutting out the frequencies if the if if your room is treated properly.
0: But at the same time, too, it's like strings are kind of known for being like roomy sounds. Like if you have a super dry sounding violin, it, it, it's going to sound awkward. Like people are used to kind of yeah. hearing it in, in a more ambient texture, right?
1: you're right and, and and that's why I don't overtreat my room um i kind of like a little bit of that natural ambience but um really like it, and it, it just the point is it takes less time I don't want to have to spend hours mixing it takes less time to find those annoying frequencies cut them out so they're not kind of working against the other tracks um in the project so and then after that you know you put you might put a little bit of uh you know i, I might put some ozone on uh sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't uh, sometimes ozone sound like it's like a plugin where it kind of spreads, um, kind of pans or stereo stereoize stereoizes. That's yep. the word. Uh, kind of the effect, kind of make it sound a little little more out there. Um, yeah, yeah, that's sort of towards towards the end when I where I have compression and and the limiter on 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 that track. But what I'll do is if the the ozone or my stereoizing type of effect doesn't work as well, I might split the track. Or I might layer the tracks, so maybe one or two out of those those four identical lines that I'm playing, the melody of the violin, uh, will have the, st- the stereoizing effect. Or maybe one or two out of them might be panned to the right or to the left. Or I might have only certain plug- plugins, like the limiter or the compression, on uh, you know on them and and the other the remaining tracks um, of those identical tracks that will will have uh, maybe just plain old uh, EQ and maybe some reverb.
0: So you'll, you'll layer your violins to get a bigger sound, but then you're also yeah. manipulating each layer so that it kind of has more character. Yeah. And, and, uh, and
1: I might have a different EQ actually for each of one of those, la- those, those layers as well. Gotcha. So. Now
0: you had mentioned, uh, you have an electric violin. So with an electric violin, I'm assuming that just means you got like a pickup on there and, and, uh, yeah. Do you ever record that DI signal? So I I have more most
1: recently started to do that. I feel like you're reading my mind. Cause I was like, like I was I was thinking for years, like I want to be able to use my electric violin for everything. But in the studio, I've mostly been able to just I've just been focusing on the acoustic because it's got that woody tone. And then I manipulate the sound inside the Daw. But with my electroviolin, I've actually got to the point where I'm able to get the plugins to work just in, in the proper way and the EQ to work just in the proper way that I can actually give it that airy, woody sound that almost makes it sound like nobody can really tell the difference. And actually I use that technique for live at, at live events. Um, and people are like, holy shit, how are you doing that? (laughs) You know? And I don't have, and I have the advantage of not having to deal with the feedback.
0: That's interesting. Cause I find that like most of the time, DIs, especially when it comes to like guitars, it's just very unusable. And so like, it just doesn't sound like a, like the actual instrument. So as far as the DI violin sound, you're finding that it, you it, it's actually kind of similar or is it only similar once you add all the processing?
1: Once you do some basic processing and just a, a little tip, for instance, like the I what is it? It's called IR technology. I've been really impressed with that. That's that came out. Like I discovered at least this, this past year. So I started playing around with that. I took this mic. Uh, I trained it with my acoustic violin and I, I, uh, I transferred it into my pedal. Uh, so I trained it to basically my electric to sound like an acoustic. So the technology is now incredible. Um, what we're able to achieve in terms of live performances. I'd love to take my um, my doll with me on the road, but it's just not, it's not
0: practical. Yeah. People are stepping on their equipment on stage and stuff. So gotcha. Oh, well, I'd love to. So I'd love to dive in a little bit more to that then, because uh, the idea of like manipulating the sound, uh, you talked about the IR. So it's, it's basically an IR of your microphone or you're doing like a microphone yeah. emulation with it. Yeah. And you could, you could
1: put that into like any boss pedal or, or any like guitar pedal. That's, you know, a couple hundred bucks or maybe a thousand bucks. Um, live, what is it? Live wire, whatever the, 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 industry standard, I I'm using boss now just cause, um, I'm able to kind of take that stuff, uh, on, on flights with me. Um, I need stuff that's compact, but, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of a big part of it. Also just cutting the frequencies within, um, the undesirable frequencies of the violin, which is a bag of worms in itself within the, um, the boss pedal. So I'm cutting it there and then I'm sending it like to um, like to, to another preamp. And then I'm able to use the AI or technology to, which also cut those same frequencies so that the output into the, uh, you know, the mixing board um, doesn't really need much of any EQ. I'm basically doing the job for the, the studio, for the studio guy.
0: Gotcha. Video Yeah, so that's cool. So which uh, which boss pedal do you use for that?
1: Oh yeah, I'm just using a crappy uh, GT one. Yeah, I'm I'm using that. Um, and honestly, I I, it's just because it's small and compact. It's got the wah pedal. Um, it's not. It would not work in and of itself. But I pair it up with like a high end uh, sanheiser and then I'm going into a, uh, a Tone Dexter, which I happen to like. There's there's some other pedals that do similar IR type technology. Um effects uh to give me that woody acoustic
0: live tone that's very cool yeah that, i i'm always intrigued by like people who know how to make di stuff sound realistic because it, it often doesn't I, I mean i've never heard of a di violin myself so i can't really comment on what what i'm used to hearing with that but uh but i imagine it would be a challenge you
1: as a studio guy i'm sure you'd notice the difference um it, it's sort of like an electric violin by default sounds like rubber it does not it doesn't work it just yeah. it's i don't I can't explain how frustrating it was over the last 20 years to play that live. Um, and it's like night and day being able to kind of shift uh, from an acoustic violin tone to an electric guitar
0: tone with one pedal touch. Fair. Yeah. It's going to open up a world of possibilities there when you have it electric for sure. That that No, that's cool. I like that idea. Um, so speaking of effects then, because, you know, again, a, l- a lot of people don't think of the violin as this instrument that you slap a whole ton of effects on often. Um, so what what would be some of the effects that you most commonly find yourself adding? Well, that's because, yeah, it, it you know, you can really screw things up with
1: the wrong wrong effects. A lot of pe- people might, by default, and this is what I was thinking initially, oh, just add some distortion, add some warmth. I was getting like, I, I was going to Guitar Center and asked them, please help me get this warm tone uh, that I'm hearing, like, from John McPonte, Joe Venuti, like, uh Lindsay Sterling, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Oh, we'll try this pedal and try that pedal and try this like warming pad. And this, uh, what was it? I'm trying to remember the, the, the main thing that really pissed me off. Um, uh, tube, the tube pedal, uh, the tube pedal. Uh, I don't know, like it, it didn't warm my sound. It just kind of made it a little grungy. So, uh, to answer your question directly, I, I'm not using a lot of the stuff that a guitarist is using. I'm just using like basic EQ, the IR technology. I'm using like some reverb, a little delay, uh, I'm adjusting the gain. I'm sort of like i don't know if the word is like gain staging. I'm adjusting the the output um the order is very important, so i, I hope that this helps your listeners like i'm using i'm I'm using a, a preamp within the g t four the g t one um and i'm and i'm or and and depending on the sound system, I need to order it differently. Hmm. so I'm not even adjusting necessarily what I'm cutting uh at each event li- you know live I am I am changing like the preamp. I'm bringing it before the EQ or I'm put sometimes putting it after the EQ. Uh, And which is why I got to do a little bit of a sound check uh, at each live event. Gotcha. Kind of things to consider. And, and the same, and by the way, I learned that, that skill from my studio work. I realized that like just doing simple things like changing the order, totally like added headroom, clear,
0: like clarified the output sound,
1: um, that type of stuff. So
0: of course. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all one thing leads into the next and the next. And so if you have something that's distorted at the beginning of the chain, then everything down the line is going to have distortion to it, you know, or it's, it's, uh, there's a lot that goes into like the strategic planning of, of all of that. It's just like, a, it's like a guitar paddle board, too. It's the same, same thing. You have to be strategic about how you order all the effects in there as well.
1: Yeah. And, and again, not, there's no one size fits all kind of solution because, and the proof of the pudding is that, I I have to change the order and I have to change the levels at every live gig that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um cuz I'm playing through different sound systems. Fair. And sound systems have a low have a uh, a louder output of bass, others have a more treble type of output. Playing through QSCs it's different from uh line arrays, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah. Cool. So uh one last question uh kind of going back to the way you were talking about the classical way of, of micing up your violin. Um, what kind of microphones would you generally recommend for someone when it comes to miking violin?
1: Um, okay. So it's funny cause I just have to preface everything with like, I, when I say like the first step in the chain in terms of getting a quality output, quick quality recording is the mic. I mean, I mean at the, the mic step, I don't mean the type of microphone that you have. Um, that's been my personal experience. I bought I spent hundreds of dollars on like the excuse me, on the Voodoo VR VR2 Ribbon mic, uh, the Aston Origin mic, like uh, all that stuff. A, a whole slew of different microphones that are pretty pretty decent quality and I, and I and ultimately like this little thing over here this is great. Um you know, line audio, I I'm pretty happy with it, but it's not this isn't what produces like my ultimate violin tone. Um, so I guess my point to your listeners is that you could spend $10,000 on a mic and it's still not necessarily going to sound great. If you're not, if you're not EQing it properly, if you're not putting in, if you're putting in too much compression or too much limiting, uh, too much limiter, um, that, that can cause like kind of muddying of, of the tone. If not, if it's not being mixed correctly, uh, also if the positioning of your instrument is incorrect. So you can have a $10,000 mic and you could be o- over here when you should be over here. You got to find the sweet spot. So finding the sweet spot is, I would say, even more important than a two thousand versus a five thousand dollar microphone. In my very strong opinion, this just been my experience.
0: Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that for sure. Like, if if you like, yeah, a microphone has a uh, a frequency response to it that can change the sound, can can shape the sound a little bit. But poor mic positioning will always ruin a recording way more than the mic selection. Like you, you, you have to have it in the right spot. Yeah. And also like, you know, you, there's also significant value
1: to adding, like to having two mics, having a mic here, like right above the instrument, if it's a violin or a saxophone and then having one a little further down, like to the side to get a little bit of that, that layering element, um, which you would slap a different EQ on also, which yeah. kind of gives it, that augments the the quality of the tone and makes it a richer kind of tone.
0: As far as positioning, like, are you, you're placing the mic, like how far away from the, the violin?
1: So, so my primary uh, position for the violin is like right under here, like right by the sweet spot of the, the F hole on the left.
0: So you're like six, uh, to, six to 12 inches away from the violin, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, something like that. Um, and I,
1: I find when I get a little closer, I end up, being, I end up being in the middle of a great solo and then I bump it
0: accidentally because I get too... <laughs> yeah, too you're probably better off extent. going with the foot away, at least. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And actually, I hang it from the ceiling as you see right here. Yeah. Um, just, it just gives me more room to move around with the violin and the bow. Gotcha. Um, clean, keeps my studio cleaner on the floor. I don't know, I just For sure. like it that
0: way. That's like the old, uh, the old Motown way. They used to hang all their, their microphones from the ceilings. Yeah, I'm an old schooler. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Why not, man. Well, well, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. and It's definitely interesting to learn more about your process and uh, you know, understanding a little bit more about ca- capturing great violin sounds and all that. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me, and I hope I was helpful with some of my, my advice.
0: So that was my interview with Asher Lobb and I hope that you got some good stuff out of that. It was definitely interesting to learn more about his approach to recording violin and I also really liked learning about how he deals with his electric violin and how he's able to make that sound just as good as a typical acoustic setup with a typical violin and a microphone. So I thought that was really cool. And manipulating DI sounds isn't always the easiest thing, but it's cool to hear that he's incorporating IR technology into the process and making it sound a lot more realistic that way. So it definitely goes to show you some of the advances in technology and how it's helping people out. So yeah, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, definitely make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you're not already. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're looking for additional help when it comes to creating pro-sounding recordings from your home studio, I'd love to help you out. I have a brand new coaching program. It's called Amplitude. And in this program, you're going to gain a repeatable process from beginning to end so that you know exactly what steps to take during the recording, editing, and mixing phases so that you can make your recording sound pro and eliminate all the guesswork throughout the whole process. Plus, in addition to all that, you get up to daily one-on-one support and feedback on your tracks and to make sure that you're taking the right steps and implementing everything properly and you can seek my feedback if you're curious about how to make your mixes sound better i will provide you with daily feedback on what steps to take to take your mixes to the next level And that is just a small snippet of what's included in this program. So if you're interested in learning more, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude. And on that webpage, you'll get all the details there. And there's a link at the bottom where you can schedule a call to chat with me. I'd love to learn more about you and your goals and your current process, your current struggles to identify how I can help you. And if it seems like I can truly help you, then I would love to extend the invite to join the program and to get to work with you directly to help make your mixes sound incredible. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called Amplitude and the webpage for that is masteryourmix.com forward slash amplitude. All right, that is it for this episode. We've reached the very end of it. Thank you so much for sticking around and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.